Brian Scudamore is the founder and CEO of O2E Brands, the parent company of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, WOW One Day Painting, and Shack Shine. What started as Brian in a truck driving around Vancouver picking up junk now rakes in over $400 million per year. Brian's biggest success, though, isn't the dollars and cents. It's the fact that he was ahead of his time in building a business with a people-first culture. That's the definition of where others won't, and that's why I was so keen to speak to him on this show. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Brian Scudamore, welcome to Where Others Won't. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me, Cody, and excited to chat with you today. Me too. Like I said uh, before we came on air, I've been following you for, for quite some time and really excited for this chat. And, you know, we're going to talk all things leadership and culture, and, and I know that's uh, core to your heart and your business as well. So why don't we start here? You know, you've spoken very openly about the importance of hiring the right people. And I know you went through the process of, you know, hiring the big name that didn't work out in your business. Mm-hmm. I still see a lot of managers, you know, still huffing and puffing about hiring. And I kind of treat it as, you know, it gets in the way of doing real business. But, you know, how has your perception of hiring and team building changed over your entrepreneurial journey? Because it's not something that you kind of really think about up front. But that continued success of organizations is so dependent on getting the right people in the right seats, isn't it? It's everything. We've got the entrance to our office. Our company is called O2E, which stands for Ordinary to Exceptional. Now, that's the parent company of all our brands, like 1-800-GOT-JUNK as an example. But one of the things we've got emblazoned across the, the front foyer, if you will, is a quote for me that says, it's all about people. And it's got my name, Brian Scudamore, below it as a sort of sign of This is what's most important here. When you walk in through the front doors of O2E Brands, you've got to remember that it's all about finding the right people and then treating all those people right. So we work very hard at that. And what I've learned and and how my change in, in hiring perception has gone over the years is simplicity is better than complex. I find that in the early days, I was like, turning to my buddies who were entrepreneurs and trying to find the best interview questions. I was trying to really understand the process and how you really can tell if someone's lying or if their resume is legit. And and I overcomplicated it. Really what we do now today is we spend a lot of time interviewing in terms of the number of interviews someone might go through within our company, but we've really boiled it down to what we call a beer and a barbecue test. The question you need to ask yourself after an interview is, would you have a beer with that person? Would you go grab a coffee or a beer with that person and hang out? Do you find them interesting and interested? Do they have a shared passion? Are they just a likable soul that you can see working within the cultural fabric of your company? And then the barbecue test is how would they fit in with the rest of the company? We're not looking for people that are 
absolutely the same. We're looking for diversity. We're looking for cultural differences. And we're looking for people, though, that still blend in with the community at O2E Brands. So simplicity, much more than compl- uh, the, the complexity, if you will. I love that. That's fantastic. I've heard similar versions of that, but the beer as an Australian, obviously the beer and the barbecue test resonates with me, but um, again, you've spoken about this a lot, but you know, the, the kind of high profile high that you made in the past reflecting on that kind of idea and the mismatch that you've talked about, I'd love it if you could just kind of explain, you know, again, you retrospectively looking at that, how that helped shape this, this whole kind of idea for you in terms of who are the right people to bring in? Yeah, to tell that story, I think I need to go further back into 1995, uh, 1994, sorry, five years into my business. I had 11 people. They say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. I had this entire team of people where I realized these aren't the right people for me. They aren't the energetic, happy, smiley, optimistic people that I see in my little company helping me grow. And so nine bad apples, I decided, you know, I'm just going to let the whole company go. And the next day, I fired all 11 people. I started with the words, I'm sorry, because I was sorry that I hired the wrong people, didn't train them or give them the love and support they needed to be successful in my business. And I had to start again. And it's painful going from five trucks, half a million in revenue down to just one. A very quick downscaling in my business, but I learned the lesson that day that it's all about people, finding the right people and and treating them right. We started to realize as a company that was growing very quickly, so fast forward today, we uh, will finish this year at 444 million in revenue. And while that's a massive number, the thing I'm proud of the most is how we've changed lives. We've Mm -hmm. seen franchise partners grow. We've seen our employees grow and we're very, very careful to understand that you you need a company that has that right cultural fit. So now the story Cody that you referenced in me having that one wrong fit, bringing in an A player from big business Starbucks, they were an ex president of one of the U S divisions And I thought, wow, imagine what they're going to do in my company. But I didn't get the hiring fit just right. I took, I rushed, I brought someone in with a real pedigree that I respected, but I didn't spend the time getting to know this person to really learn, is this person the right person for me? Do they get the quirky ADD nature that I have as an entrepreneur? Do they see the value in entrepreneurship and having a partnership of an entrepreneur and a professional executor? And I don't think this person did. And it it just about bankrupted after 14 months, my business that I'd worked so hard to build. And it's tricky because if you get one person wrong, it can just about bankrupt the company. But then conversely, when I got the right person into the right seat there, the, uh, that person's successor, Eric church, who's been part of the business for eight years, we have more than quadrupled the business under his leadership. Same person as the founder, which is me, but, and the same cultural standards and norms in the company, but that one executor made all the difference to really merge my vision, his strategy, and quadruple the sales of O2E. One of our mutual friends, Michelle Falcon, who's been on the show uh, with Patty McCord from Netflix. If, if you're new to the show, I recommend listening to, to that episode. But he joined your company and he talks 
about this iconic culture that you would just hear about in Vancouver. It just kind of uh, resonated outside of the the actual building itself. And, you know, the, his story goes that he joins a contact center, ends up, you know, on the 4 a.m. shift or uh, whatever it was, but he just wanted to be part of it. So I'm, I'm wondering because, you know, as an outsider looking at, at you and what you've achieved, you were clearly ahead of the game in, in that cultural piece. And, and you've been very deliberate about it. So what did you see? What, what did you recognize in business where it kind of was a, you know, a bit of a cog in the wheel economy through the nineties, you know, downsizing all the stuff that kind of Simon Sinek talks about, you know, finances over people. What did you, what made you say, we're going to do people ahead of, of anything else? Yeah. I, I, looking back, I want to sit there and say, Hey, I was smart and I had a plan and it was all intentional, but I just, I wouldn't give myself that much credit. You know, what, what I think really happened if I reflect is in the same way that I shared with you, the beer and barbecue philosophy, I think, Hey, if I've ever had a house party and I've thrown some pretty good bashes, (laughs) you as a host want to make sure people are having fun. A, you want to invite the right people to the party, ones that, you know, want to dance and have some cocktails together and have a lot of laughs. And number two is you want to make sure you're taking care of those people and and helping them have a good time, sort of facilitate the, hey, we're all here together in this house party. And I think that my philosophy on, on culture was really just let's fill the house with the right people and let's really ensure that everyone's having a good time. And so it's taking care of your people. It's caring about your people. It's finding out what's important to them and where they see their vision crossing over with our own vision and asking the right questions, getting some good conversation at that, that house party. And so I don't want to give you the impression that O2E Brands is just a big party, but it, it really is that belief that you're surrounding yourself in a business you build with great people someone like a Michelle, let's make sure that they've got opportunity. Let's make sure we understand their career path and figure out how to continue to make this a better place. I asked this to Chip when he was on the show as well. Do you think there's something about the Pacific Northwest that builds this vibe? I don't think so. I think that, you know, Chip's a friend of mine and, um, I look at what he built with Lululemon and he's a a super smart, sharp guy, but I think something about him that really helped Lululemon was he just cared about his people. And I don't think that's just a West coast thing. I think that's a humanitarian thing. I think that, you know, we as human beings all on the same planet, no matter where someone is from, I think that that's something we all understand is the golden rule, treating others as you would like to be treated. I think Vancouver, we, maybe we just got lucky and we've had some good, solid, successful companies come out of uh, the city. We've had a lot of companies that have failed, a lot of companies that, you know, people have ended up in jail. I mean, Vancouver's not perfect. I don't think it's a Vancouver thing. I think it's really just, or a West Coast thing. I think it's just finding the right leaders who get it who understand the importance of their leadership and the impact on changing people's lives that can be had with providing the right opportunity for the right people. Something else that you've talked a lot about that, that I love is understanding your own strengths. And this is particularly huge for me because my friends and, and the people that I have on this show, predominantly sports coaches, actually, I've we've talked about business people, but and this is one of the things that is is 
huge in our industry now and what we're all talking about is understanding your own strengths and then putting people around you that uh, can amplify your strengths but also deliver on, on different deliverables that you might not be as strong as. Mm-hmm. The self-awareness piece for you, like when, when do you think that came in? When do you think you felt comfortable in, you know, you talked about kind of the, your ADD nature, but when do you think you really found your own strengths and were really comfortable in owning them? I think it's been a very gradual journey of 30 years of failing, making lots of mistakes. I wrote a book last year called WTF, Willing to Fail, and it was just owning up to all the mistakes. But wow, what valuable learning I got from every one of those mistakes. And I think when I realized, I don't know the exact turning point, but you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago that, man, there's a lot of power in making mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes and just be upfront and be vulnerable in it and admit them. I saw that it was a little like magic. I'd make a mistake. I'd apologize for it. I would tell people what I learned by it. And then I'd, I'd allow it to make me or us as a company bigger, better, stronger. And so we try to encourage others to not fear falling down, not fear making a, a mistake. As long as their intentions are honest and they've got the integrity and they fit with our values, take some risks, mm-hmm. mess up, and, and then go, okay, what did I learn from that? You know, some of the greatest companies in the world made some pretty big mistakes and learned from them. You know, I love the Airbnb story. And I was talking to Joe Gebbia in San Francisco, one of the four founders, and hearing the story of how they were renting air mattresses, blow up air mattresses uh, at the Democratic National Convention because people were running out of hotel space and they thought this was a brilliant idea and it turned out to be an awful failure. However, that Airbnb model got them thinking, how do we tweak the model to actually make this work? And now today they're the largest hotel chain on the planet by far. And so what can you learn from failure? Understanding it's okay. And as you said, you know, admitting your weaknesses. I also believe human beings have way more faults, way more weaknesses than they do strengths. How liberating it has been for me to understand that I don't need to be good at certain things. I don't ever need to be good at reading books. I hate reading books. I'm so disfocused. I find it a real painful challenge, but I can find other ways to learn through conversation, through curiosity with others. So figure out what you, what you suck at, be okay with that, and then play to your, your gifts and really empower yourself to, to take the things that you do well and really focus on doing more of those things. Because it usually uh, falls hand in hand that the things you're good at are also the things you enjoy. Why not have a career that's filled with all the specialization of all the things you do well and enjoy doing? Yeah. Liberating for me as well. It's taken me some time to to really own it, but even this show is kind of a product of that process for me and, Mm -hmm. and recorded three podcasts this week and I've said it on every one. I think this is the best thing that I've done. Like sitting here talking to you and and the people that I've been able to speak to the conversations and the intellectually engaging conversations you can have with someone in 35 minutes that just fills my bucket completely. So I hear you on that. Yeah, you make a much bigger difference in this world and impact on others if you're focusing on things that you're so passionate about. Totally. And 
you, you can hear your passion talking, uh, you know, leading this podcast. And what a great thing, you know, I always wish my, my dream for people is that they can figure out their life's work, but figure out more importantly, how to do that life's work, because it's, it's really figuring out the execution in a way that you're just so fired up by, you know, I feel so lucky to be playing a small role in my company or group of companies where I get to focus on vision and culture and the rest is done by other people who are way better at all those other things that need to be done and way smarter than I ever will be in those areas. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's liberating for sure. You talked a little bit about your book. Uh, tell us more about that. What, what was the catalyst for that? And then since you've released it, you know, has, has anything surprised you? Like have, have people kind of clued in on one particular element that maybe you didn't anticipate? You know, I, I, I always use this with authors, but I kind of have this vision in my head of like Malcolm Gladwell not being super in love with the 10,000 hours rule. And, you know, he, he probably preferred another chapter in the book. I find like that's often the way with when you write a book, but was there something that surprised you or something that people picked up on that maybe you didn't anticipate? I think not a specific story that stands out because I hear different stories resonate with different people, which is great. Mm-hmm. But what surprised me was the impact the book has had on others. I continue to get emails and stories and hear from people who've read the book and the difference it's made and what it taught them or what it made them realize. And I really thought to myself, I I don't need to write a book. I, as an entrepreneur, many entrepreneurs do. And the Wizard of Ads, a a gentleman uh, named Roy H. Williams, who is my co-author, Roy tried to convince me for years to write a book. And I finally just said, I don't want to write a book. I don't need to write a book. My ego doesn't need a book. And Roy said, listen, I don't think you're getting it. This isn't about you. This is about others. This is about the impact that your stories will make um, on other people's lives. And when I connected those dots with all I'm about is us as a business impacting and changing people's lives, then you're right. I need to do the work so we can tell the stories. And that's what surprised me was getting the word out and having people connect with our stories even if I'll I'll never ever hear a word from them about the book, the fact that it did have an impact is something that feels really great. Yeah, that's magical, isn't it? That's been my experience as well. And just sharing my opinion on the world through a book and then, and then starting this podcast, it's fascinating to see where it ends up. And I've heard some anecdotes in the last couple of days that have just blown my mind. And, and it's made me go back and you know, like, I, I want to write blogs and I want to do a show about why everyone should start a podcast. So you don't need to have a $444 million company to share your story. What I've been saying to people recently is, you know, there's these huge gaps in our human history that we have the opportunity to fill with content. Now we get to tell our stories and I think everyone should be out there blogging, creating content, creating something for their kids and their grandkids just to share their stories. It doesn't need to be this grandeur. You don't need to have made billions and billions of dollars or think that it's fascinating. It will be fascinating to your great, great grandchildren in the future. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I hope you do do that episode on why everyone should do a podcast because I couldn't agree with you more that everybody has a story. One of the realizations for me recently was I was asked to do an interview with one of our Wow One Day painting franchise owners to hear this person's story so that we could share it with potential franchise candidates that came into the pipeline. And the podcast turned out so great because it was a guy who quit medical school and traded in a scalpel for, for a paintbrush to build a $6 million wow one day painting franchise. And it's just one of those stories of contrast where you go, why would you quit medical school to do this? But he did and it worked. So we thought, okay, there must be other stories with our other founders. And so we created a podcast called Founder Stories, which hasn't gone live yet, but by the time this airs, it, uh, it, it will. We've got the first season in the bag and we're rolling out Founder Stories. And what is so fun about that is every single interview I did, I ended up hearing stories that blew my mind, stories that I was hearing from some of our franchise partners that I'd known for more than a decade about their success and some of the unknown secrets as to why they made things work and how they were close to the brink of failure and, and hearing that everybody's got a founder story has been really, really uh, entertaining and insightful for me. That's incredible. Let's talk about that for a little bit. You know, I follow uh, Gary V and I, I saw your episode with him and, and it was really interesting hearing you two just jam on let's call it original entrepreneurs or, or you know, previous generation entrepreneurs when it was different, when it, when it wasn't, you know, something that you would slap on your bio like you do today. Mm-hmm. Like what's, what's your commentary? You, you're kind of influential in this space, the entrepreneurial space and, and your results speak for themselves, but what's kind of your, your commentary on the whole entrepreneurial space at the moment and, and maybe some advice for anyone listening that, that is thinking about, you know, maybe they've identified that they actually are entrepreneurial, but are still a little bit uh, skeptical or or scared of of going for it. Yeah, I think that being an entrepreneur is something that a lot of people these days are saying they are, or that they're, they're doing entrepreneurship, they're studying entrepreneurship, but it's a life's journey. To me, what I've learned is it it took eight years to get to a million in sales with our first business, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And now that business alone will do a million in sales on a given day. It took eight years to get to a million. I mean, that is slow and steady and frustrating and painful. Um, These journeys take a long time. Someone smart once said uh, these overnight uh, success stories sure take a long time. I think what's happening today, the problem is that people get into entrepreneurship because they think they can make a lot of money. They get into entrepreneurship because they think it's just going to be so much fun. Both both of those things I think are a myth. It takes a long time before you make a lot of money. It is not an easy feat. It's most entrepreneurs fail versus succeed. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we went after a franchise model is how do we take our recipe and share it with others, people that want to try entrepreneurship and increase their odds of success versus going at it alone straight from uh, the get-go. So it's there's a lot of people doing entrepreneurship, and it, it is a lot of fun once you sort of get your mind right and understand that the ups and downs are both exciting, like on a roller coaster, and not getting too freaked out when things aren't working, but understanding, okay, there's a failure coming here, what can I do differently? 
how do I make sure that I don't crash and burn, but that this ultimately gives me some momentum to go to the next step. Eight years. How did you do that even mentally? Well, it was, I was young, so I had a lot of energy and a lot of conviction towards making my business work. Many people would have given up. Now, if I was 50 years old when I started the business, I might have given up after three or four years. I think because Mm -hmm. I had the youth and because I didn't know what I didn't know, I was just, I was determined. I remember people constantly around me saying, Brian, it's not a good idea. This is never going to work. It's never going to be franchisable. I heard a lot of no's and a lot of nevers, but I think that lit a fire in me. And, um, you know, you talk about this, this shows about the places that people don't often go. You know, I went to the place of telling my dad, who's a liver transplant surgeon, that I was dropping out of university to pursue this business full time. I dropped out of high school. I dropped out of college. I've gone to a lot of places that a lot of people would be afraid to go and a lot of places that were scary when I was there. But what I realized is those things all made me who I am today and helped create a platform for creating a a business that we're so unbelievably proud of. I think that's really interesting. Do you think potentially part of the problem also is that communication piece around just entrepreneurship in general and and the struggle that it's going to be? I'm, I'm talking in terms of parents and partners and, 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 you know, you hear enough no's, from clients and, and suppliers and, and potential franchisees that I feel, uh, at least in terms of observing my friends that are on entrepreneurial journeys, is they don't tend to speak up and kind of tell you that it's coming or over-communicate that they might need some, some help and letting their kind of support network really come to their aid. I think everyone just kind of puts their head down and, and tries to make it on their own potentially, which might be a a shortcoming in in terms of the whole kind of process. I think that's absolutely a shortcoming. One thing that I know we as a company have learned is how to ask for help. The whole franchise model is is one of asking your neighbor, someone who's a franchise partner of Shack Shine or Wow One Day Painting, they're in a different city, but they're not competing with you. Ask them for help don't worry about fessing up and saying, I'm making a mistake or I'm scared or I don't know what to do here. There's a network of people to turn to and ask for help. So my own personal ask for help network would be EO, the entrepreneur organization. I've been a member Mm -hmm. since 1996. You had to have a million in revenue to get into it. I I had just kind of gotten to that point and that was going to become an association for me to have great, great learning. And the big learning for me was always reaching out to someone and saying, I don't have the answers. Is there someone out here who does? Is there someone who can help me take a shortcut here? Someone who's solved the problem that I'm currently facing. And the answer was always yes. 100% of the time I would find someone who would say, I have the answers. I've done this before. Here's my experience, happy to share. Here's a manual written out on the process, whatever it is. And I think that that's one of the greatest gifts of entrepreneurship is people being willing to help others uh, through a somewhat uh, some, uh, sometime uh, painful journey. 
what's missing is actually the verbiage to give to people to go and ask for that help. Like what are the words that they even say? And so, you know, I've been working with some teams and and organizations around even just what that first couple of words is Mm -hmm. that you can go up to anyone within an organization and start to ask for help. It's great to say, ask for it, but you know, here's the actual words that you can use. And as soon as someone else recognizes those words, okay, you know, phone down, give, give you my full attention. I can help you here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's been really beneficial. Mm-hmm. It can only be, it could be three words, could be the start of a sentence, could be a full sentence, whatever it is. But, but that's something that, that we've seen some real success with. Well, you know, for me, whenever I ask for help, I, I, I do it very directly and there's a lot of courage behind doing it sometimes depending on what the situation is. You know, when I almost lost my business and had that one wrong key hire and we were three days away from selling the company and, and going bankrupt uh, or raising money, uh, selling off majority interest of the company to avoid bankruptcy, I, I could have lost the business. And what I did was I reached out to some people that I, I knew could probably lead me in the right direction. And I said, I could really use some help. I could really use some help. It's the simple thing, uh, a way to start a conversation. But I think to your point, someone will put down sort of everything else and focus on the conversation on the other line or in front of them and and say, okay, what's going on? And they'll start asking you questions. And I think another way to look at it is just think of ourselves, you know, uh, whether it's you, Cody, or, or me, if we thought asking someone for help shouldn't be that difficult because if somebody asked me for help, how would I feel? How would I react? I'd be happy to help. And so if someone asks us for help and we're willing to give that help, I think what we need to remember is no matter how tough of a situation we're in, I think human beings appreciate the opportunity to help others. It's just how do more people be inspired, whether it's mental health or business help to go ask for the help they're looking for. I know we've got to get you out of here. You've got to go and run your business, (laughs) but given that, uh, given that, you know, I have an audience in North America and Australia, give you an opportunity just to pitch the business. How can people find your business and and, and where are they? And then don't forget about the, the Aussie market as well. So open floor, give us the two minute spiel. I think we're about building a platform that others can learn about how to build and grow a franchise business. We've got four great brands that we're proud of. If I can ever help any one of your listeners, um, they can find me on all the social platforms, Instagram at Brian Scudamore. That would be one of my favorite platforms because there's not a lot of reading required. Um, (laughs) <laughs> you know, reach out and connect with me again, entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, I believe in practicing what I preach. How do we help others? If I can help someone uh, reach out and connect and really grateful that you had me on your show, Cody, and clearly you've got uh, some amazing people you've been interviewing. So it's uh, an honor to be included in that family. Yeah. I've, like I said, I've been following you for a long time and I'm glad we could connect and uh, next time we'll be in person. I'm sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for this ton of info, uh, plenty of learnings for everyone at home as well. Awesome. Thanks for having me and uh, we'll see you again sometime.